God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast, where we explore the calendar of the church through the lives of the saints and the remembrance of the feasts. I'm your host, James John Marks, recording from the city of Chicago. This week, we are commemorating the Feast of the Theophany of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is celebrated on the 6th of January. We realize this was last Saturday, however, as the leave-taking of the feast does not occur until the 14th, and because we wish to complete the connection of this feast to our previous two episodes regarding St. Joseph the Betrothed and the Circumcision of Jesus, all of which emphasize the reality of his incarnation in human flesh, we will flex our format slightly and speak of this feast during the week of the after-feast prior to the leave-taking. For the avoidance of confusion, Theophany is the feast of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by St. John the Forerunner. In the Western tradition, the 6th of January is the Feast of Epiphany, which commemorates the arrival of the Magi following the star to honor the Christ. As we mentioned during our episode remembering St. Joseph the Betrothed, the Eastern tradition includes this event as part of the Feast of Nativity on the 25th of December. We should point out this feast day is called Theophany because the Trinity is explicitly manifest. Jesus, the incarnate Son, is in the water. The voice of the Father is heard acknowledging his approval, and the Holy Spirit descends and stays upon the Son. In the two shorter accounts of these events in Mark and Luke, St. John the Forerunner tells those who come to him, thinking he is the Messiah, that he can witness to the one on whom he saw the Holy Spirit come upon and remain with as the Messiah, not himself. The texts describe this descent as being like a dove, and we see this depicted in icons with an actual white bird surrounded by the dark and light rings which indicate both something outside of the realm of what happens in day-to-day life, as well as a manifestation of God other than in the second person of the Trinity, the Incarnate Son. This is the only icon in which it is permitted to depict the Holy Spirit as a bird, despite the proliferation of this image in pious art, especially in the West. It may serve us better to understand what is being described in the text as the Holy Spirit descended the way doves descend, rather than it taking the form of a bird. Let us hear the full account of Jesus' baptism from the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. St. John the Forerunner was proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. We spoke last week about suzerain vassal treaties in the ancient world, as well as the Greco-Roman military Evangelia, which gave shape to what we now call the Gospel of Jesus. Many see the etymology of Evangelion as good news, splitting the Greek word into its two roots and woodenly translating them. But for the ordinary people of a bywater village, the arrival of messengers to alert them of the arrival of a great conquering hero of the empire was only good news for them from the perspective of the ego of the hero. Like the suzerain vassal treaty, an Evangelion was a warning to people to be prepared to show the signs of faithfulness when he who claimed right rule arrived, lest they receive curses instead of blessings. With this in mind, we can easily see St. John the Forerunner beginning the work of what we now call preaching the gospel, long before St. Peter on the day of Pentecost, with his warning cry of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The baptism of St. John was not something he invented out of thin air. Ritual washing took on a whole variety of forms in Second Temple Hebraic practice. For example, the community rule for the people living in the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered contains a direct reference to sprinkling with cleansing waters as a symbol of repentance and sanctification. It should be obvious to all of us Jesus had no need to repent any more than he had need of submitting to the sign of circumcision under the covenant he made with Abraham, or of needing to be cleansed with his mother in the temple. But we must remember, at least on this surface level of understanding, Jesus' life is a roadmap for our own. His humility with regard to keeping the commandments should prevent us from ever believing we are in some way above these obediences ourselves. The Hebraic tradition was entirely rooted in the covenant of Noah, Abraham, and Moses. Christianity has always been the new covenant, which fills the old to overflowing. The sacraments of the church are the signs of our intent to be faithful to the covenant. As we said last week, while we may not be able to speak with any certainty regarding the state of someone's relationship to God, let alone in corner cases such as unbaptized infants, we can know only our own journey toward the likeness of Christ obligates us to obey the signs in our own lives. However, if we are the head of a household, it is clear from at least three narratives in the scriptures, our own faithfulness to these signs means obeying them across our entire household. In the 17th chapter of Genesis, as we discussed last week, Abraham is given the sign of circumcision by God regarding his covenant relationship. God's command for the sign clearly indicates it is to be applied to every male of at least eight days of age in Abraham's household. 
Since we know baptism fulfills circumcision, we can look at the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and see the entire household of Cornelius receives baptism from St. Peter upon hearing and accepting the Evangelion of Jesus. The negative example comes in the fourth chapter of Exodus, when Moses' wife Zipporah saves him from the wrath of God when she circumcises their son Gershom, which apparently Moses had neglected to do. Given baptism fulfills circumcision, and given these examples in the scripture, it is clear the apostolic tradition of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of baptizing infants is appropriate, despite other traditions in our society connecting baptism to individual conversion, and thus a consensual knowing act for one who is of age. While it is true, at certain times in the history of the church, baptism was delayed for those who had concerns about falling into serious sin after they had received the Holy Spirit. As this cuts one off from the rest of the sacramental life of the church, the contemporary practice expects infants to be baptized and raised in the full life of the church, continually nurtured by divine grace, and shown the way of the life of faithfulness to the life of Christ by the example shown to them by their parents, godparents, and the pious members of their parish and the larger community. Returning to his own baptism, if Jesus did not need the water to cleanse him, what else is going on here besides an illustration of humble obedience for us? The church has always taught that by entering the Jordan River in this ritual manner, Jesus cleansed the waters rather than the waters cleansing him. This is an example to us of how to fulfill our vocation to be fruitful and multiply in the sense of making the whole creation a garden, well-ordered and full of life. In icons of Jesus' baptism, there are typically figures depicted below the surface, the spirits of the water, usually indicating their distress. In a sense, Jesus is performing an exorcism of the waters. Throughout the Bible, water, especially deep or swift moving water, is a symbol of chaos and death. We see this in the second verse of the first chapter of Genesis. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. In the 14th chapter of the Exodus, the Israelites follow Moses across the Red Sea, which closes behind them to destroy the Egyptian army. In the religion of ancient Egypt, this expanse of deep water to their east was the realm of the dead. The sun was essentially resurrected every morning as it rose from the east over the water. By passing through on dry ground while the army is drowned, the Israelites are passing through death, the death of their slavery, into new life, their covenant with God most high. By passing through it on dry ground while the army is drowned, the Israelites are passing through death, the death of their slavery, into new life. This same action is repeated in the third chapter of Joshua, when the wandering Israelites cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Now it is the death of their wanderings caused by their disobedience which is ending, and they are entering into the new life of their covenant with God Most High. In the Gospels we get two stories involving Jesus, his twelve disciples, a boat, and the sea. One is in the fourteenth chapter of Matthew, and the other the fourth chapter of Mark. In the former, Jesus walks on water to meet his followers in their boat, an illustration not only of his dominion over nature, but also his immunity to death. In the latter account, they are already in the boat when a storm threatens to sink them. Being cast into deep water, straight into the underworld as it were, was not a good death in the ancient world. Terrified, the disciples beseech Jesus to save them, which he does with a few calm-spoken words. Again, not merely showing his control of the created world, but also the way of life to which he is calling all of us, which puts creation in good order so that it can nourish life. 
How do we know baptism is a sacrament and it replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant? We covered this a bit last week, but let us look at the commandments and calling Jesus gives to his apostles just prior to his ascension. We find this in part in the 28th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and in part in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. We will combine portions of both chapters into a single reading. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We heard last week St. Peter's immediate response to the question, what must we do, after he presented the new covenant to those gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, was, repent and be baptized. With this we see, the Holy Spirit, which had descended upon St. Peter and the other apostles on this day, has guided him to make the connection between the commandment Jesus gave just a few days before, this new covenant, the Evangelion, and the fulfillment of the old. Circumcision is replaced by baptism. We should address, briefly, a point which has caused some confusion. In chapters 2 and 10 of the Acts of the Apostles, at Pentecost as well as when he is with the household of Cornelius, St. Peter calls for baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. However, in chapters 8 and 19, we find two situations, the first when Saints Peter and John go to Samaria, and the second when St. Paul goes to Ephesus, in which persons have been brought into the faith but in an incomplete way. In the first case, some have been baptized into Christ, but had not yet received the apostles' laying on of hands, and thus had not received the Holy Spirit, while in the second, they had only received the baptism of St. John the Forerunner, and had not yet even been sufficiently catechized to know about the Holy Spirit. In both cases, the apostles, who are present, take corrective action to ensure these faithful persons are correctly instructed, and their ritual faithfulness is completed. So why then do we have some occasions on which it seems being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is what is commanded, and in some cases where it seems to be insufficient to only be faithful to the Messiah and not to the Trinity? 
we have found an excellent article published on the blog Catalog of Good Deeds, which is operated by the St. Elizabeth Romanov Monastery, located in Minsk, Belarus. We have provided a link to the full article in the episode description. However, we will summarize for our purposes now. It is clear both from Jesus' own words at his great commission to the disciples, and in the Trinitarian nature of the Theophany itself, our covenantal baptism must be Trinitarian, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons. In fact, a document known as the Didache, which is dated to the late first century, explicitly calls for the invocation of the Trinity during baptism, which indicates this is the apostolic tradition. If this is beyond question, then what are we to make of these two occasions in which St. Peter, who was present at the Great Commission and the Ascension of Jesus, calls for baptism in the name of Jesus Christ? We don't use the expression in the name of very much in our culture anymore. Traditional relationships of patronage, master and apprentice relationships, as well as trade guild and fraternal societies have largely disappeared from the structure of our society. But in the ancient world, these types of relationships defined much of life. One could go speak to the head of government in the name of the Potter's Guild, meaning as a representative of the whole guild. One could produce a piece of art in the name of one's patron, because the expenses of the work were shouldered by the patron. They got the public credit, rather than the one who actually did the creating. With this context, we can see a call to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, less as the words for the baptismal formula itself, and more in reference to the way of the life of faithfulness to Christ we speak about so often on this podcast. The Church is both the Bride of Christ and the Body of Christ. Through both images we can see how what we do is done in the name of Jesus in this ancient scent of relationship dynamics. But what does it mean to walk in the way of faithfulness to the life of Christ? We come into relationship with God Most High. We take on the likeness of Christ. And what is revealed to us when this relationship becomes sufficiently deep? The one God in three persons, made visible in the Son, whose likeness we now reflect. In this sense, the name of Jesus Christ is the name of the Holy Trinity, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thus it would seem, when St. Peter speaks of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he is not articulating the baptismal formula itself, but rather is describing the nature of the baptism being given. In Acts 19, this is specifically to contrast it with the baptism of St. John the Forerunner, which, while a pious act, is not the saving sacrament of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, which brings with it the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We spoke earlier about water as the symbol of chaos and death. We spoke of Christ exorcising and cleansing the waters in his own baptism. We also spoke of images such as the Israelites entering the underworld through the Red Sea and coming out to new life on the far side. With all these images in mind, the Church has always seen the sign of baptism as the sign of our voluntary death and faithfulness to Christ that we might be resurrected to new life. In the apostolic tradition, catechumens are given a white robe when they are baptized. This meant to directly invoke images of burial wrappings, as well as garments which are washed clean white. The prayers of baptism also speak of exorcism. These prayers are read over the one preparing for baptism in the narthex, outside of the church's nave. The one prayed over turns to the west, the opposite direction from God's altar, and spits, or blows, in a ritual act of rejecting the demonic temptation. 
Then one enters into the death and the cleansing waters and arises again, ready to pursue the likeness of Christ, free from the bondage of sin and death. We do not merely baptize our children and converts into the faith. In carrying on Jesus' work of cleansing the creation and preparing it to be a garden, on the Feast of Theophany we go out with our clergy to the large bodies of water in our communities, oceans, lakes, and rivers, and we bless them. In many places this is done by having the priest, after citing the prayers, throwing a cross into the water which the young men of the community dive in to race to retrieve. A very different event in January at Lake Michigan in Chicago, or the Gulf of Finland in St. Petersburg, compared to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. Theophany is also the day in which water is blessed to be used as holy water throughout the year. Pious people drink a bit each day, or when they are ill, or have a particular burden in prayer. It is also sprinkled by the priest during various processions around the church building or through the neighborhood. This water is also used to bless homes each year, between this feast day and the beginning of Great Lent, as a way to exercise the home, just as we enter the nearly one full quarter of the year dedicated to intense prayer, repentance, and fasting. While this house blessing is being performed, both the priest and the household will chant the hymn of Theophany. We hope this unintentional series, which arose out of the events of the extended festal period of Christmas, has been as interesting for you to hear as it has been for us to put together. We have been able to connect several events which emphasize the reality of Christ's incarnation in human flesh, his birth, his earthly family, his circumcision, to fulfill the Old Covenant, and his baptism, which is the fulfillment of circumcision, and is one of the ways in which we participate in the healing of creation. We hope you have a more clear understanding of how central to our faith the covenant structure is and how to recognize them in the scriptures. We hope you can see how this understanding impacts everything up to and including contemporary political events. With God's help, we may all more clearly see that covenant relationships define modes of behavior which distinguish the faithful from those at risk of being cursed. Our faith is not merely holding the right ideas in our heads, but it is a way of life. But the obligation is on us and in no way constrains God. We demonstrate obedience in recognition of vulnerable trust. His salvation is a gift we live in hope will be granted. How he resolves his relationship to those who do not have the opportunity to be obedient, either because of helplessness or ignorance, is beyond our speculation. Above all, we hope all of this is illuminating to you about the depths we can discover in the structure of the church calendar and the relationship between the remembrances during certain seasons. Not only do we see the likeness of Christ in the myriad distinct faces of the saints with their unique lives, but we can also see the way of faithfulness in the feasts we celebrate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints Podcast. This has been a joint production of Paradosis Pavilion and Generative Sounds. If this podcast has been edifying for you, please consider the entire Paradosis Pavilion catalog, as well as the music of Generative Sounds, both of which can be accessed via their respective websites indicated in the episode description. The reference materials and passages of scripture which were featured in this episode are provided in the episode description. All iconographic images used for our episodes, unless otherwise indicated, are presented by kind permission of Nicholas Pappas, who controls the distribution rights of these images. Prints of all of Nick's work can be found at St. Demetrius Press, the website for which is indicated in the episode description. Please contact us through our social media channels if you are interested in providing us with feedback or engaging us in conversation, which we would welcome. 
We would humbly ask you to subscribe to the podcast at whichever publication service you are utilizing and would also request you share this podcast with those you care about in the hope as many people as possible may have their spiritual lives enriched through a fuller awareness of the church calendar. Please forgive us our shortcomings and pray for us. We will conclude this episode with the Troparion of Theophany. When thou, O Lord, was baptized in the Jordan, worship of the Trinity was made manifest. For the voice of the Father bore witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son. And the Spirit in the likeness of a dove confirmed the truth of his word. O Christ our God, who hast appeared and enlightened the world, glory to thee. of your holy fathers, O Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.